Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 57. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you love vintage cars? Then go to CarsYeah.com and get a free copy of the fantastic Filler Up book. It's a full-color ebook filled with fuel filler fun with over 60 color photographs of vintage cars plus inspirational quotes from some of the most famous automotive enthusiasts of all time. Simply go to CarsYeah.com, click on the free book button on the homepage, and download your Filler Up book today. It's free at CarsYeah.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I'm very excited to introduce my special guest, David Ryan. David, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Hell yeah. All right. I like that spirit. David Ryan has been a coach builder and a metal shaper for over 28 years. Before opening his own shop outside of Calgary near Crossfield, Alberta, he spent time creating and restoring magnificent automobiles, including Rolls-Royce, Bentley, Morgan, and Hudson. He spent 10 years at the acclaimed RM Classic Cars as one of the three coach builders and metal shapers. David worked on both European and American marks. Some of them went on to be best in class and best in show at Pebble Beach. He was on the team that restored the 2006 Best of Show winner, a 1931 Daimler Double 650. He is a mentor and a teacher to young automotive tradespeople in Western Canada. So David, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you, so please take some time and share some more about your history, your career, your interests, and of course, your passion for automobiles. Okay, well, thank you, Mark, for the uh, wonderful introduction. When I was a kid, uh, it didn't take long for me to uh, latch on to the Corgi toys and the cars that, that my parents bought me. I still have a lot of those cars, believe it or not. I like the look of the style of the vehicles that were coming in. Because I was born in 64, my parents, there were still some of the cars that they bought me that still had some of the 50s and the 60s influence. Uh, they also bought me uh, a lot of European Corgi stuff, the Matchbox stuff. I don't know if that's what it was or not, but uh, that influenced the style and design. But the mechanical parts, I never, I never really found as much interest in as the body and the styling of the cars when I was a kid. Most of those those early cars were uh, were, were an influence, even though they were just little uh, Matchbox cars. I just uh, carried on about September '85. Uh, that's all I did. I, I made all my own parts. I would. I think I was paying my customers about three dollars an hour <laughs> back in those days. Um, and that's kind of, that's where your passion leads you, uh, where you don't care. You don't care if you're making any money. You don't care if you're spending any money. All you want to do is just make those panels. You want to make it. You want to, I can still remember there was no internet back in those days. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I just had this idea where you take a stump, uh, some kind of a piece of metal, some tree branch, something that was big enough that you could take a ball beam hammer and hammer a few things into it and get an idea. 
this was the only way. It was just more of an instinct thing. Uh, there, I had read no books, no nothing. It was all instinct. Uh, so wow. the instinct was there. When I managed to get a chance to, uh, to get an apprenticeship, you know, I don't know if it was divine intervention or what, but it all worked out really well. That's when I started working on the Rolls Royce and the Morgans and that for my apprenticeship. I can still remember the day a friend of my father's told me he had a son who was getting a car restored at this Reg Beer Coach Builder. And said, I think Reg is uh, looking for an apprenticeship. Oh, my God. <laughs> I got on that. He gave me a phone number. I phoned the guy. I was totally excited. He said, phone me back in two weeks. I was like, oh, <laughs> two weeks. Oh, my God. I got to wait two weeks. <laughs> I phoned him back two weeks later. He said, can you be here? I said, I will, I will build myself a rocket ship to be there. I drove there, went for the interview. He said, uh, call me back in another two weeks. I had to wait another two weeks. So I phoned him back. He said, okay, do you want to start in another two weeks? So, and I, I managed to show up that Monday morning and I can still remember it vividly. And so I did that for, I did that for, uh, for three years there. And then I, I wanted to learn all that coach building. And that's what Mr. Beer was. He was a coach builder from England. He had got out of the service. They were looking for coach builders after the after the Second World War. Today, he would be the same age as my dad, so he's about 89 or 90. He was tough. He was tough. He used to make me cry all constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, and somebody told me that later, they said, the reason why he made you cry or he gave you heck about something is because he cared. Because if not, he would have been indifferent and he would have told you just to leave. Yeah. I understood that, that uh, he did care and, and, and he did want me to be a proper coach builder and he did want me to learn. Sure. He would have been my first mentor. So I was with them for, for three years and learned how to use the English wheel and to use the steak dollies and tools I had never seen before. It was so important, especially the English wheel. I, somebody had mentioned it one time when I was younger and it was like, oh my God, I need to get onto one of those things. And all of a sudden I'm looking at these tools I, I had only wished and dreamed about that I actually got to work on. And, uh, you know, slip rolls and, I, and, and, and the swage machines and, and, and machines that I... Oh, yes. Back in those days, you couldn't find any of them. There were no, I couldn't find any handmade stuff, nothing. Uh, these were original tools that he had bought, but they were all made in Hamilton, Ontario, back in the, oh God, back in the, back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Mm -hmm. But they were all, all, all properly made. I looked at all this stuff and couldn't believe what I was looking at, and then I got to learn on them. I remember uh, him giving me a book. Or Ron Fernier. Ron Fernier's book uh, gave a little more about the metal shaping and that. And so I started to do some of the stuff that was in the book, just uh, doing patterns and, and, and all that. And with what Mr. Beer had told me, because Mr. Beer was a coach builder, so he knew most, he knew more wood than he did aluminum, even though, or, or pardon me, metal shaping. So, we would make parts and pieces uh, for cars, you know, uh, quarter panels, things like that, repair uh, panels, things like that. 
but boy, was he one of the best woodworkers I had ever seen. That was his real love, was the wood. Yeah. That's what I learned there. Yeah. It was important. So sure. I did three years there, and, and then I went to uh, learn the coach building trade, uh, the modern coach building trade, worked on limousines and hearses and that for uh, about a year, and the company closed down. It was 88, and they went back to Ohio. Then I got into uh, collision work because I knew collision work was important. He did to know not only how to make the body, but I knew, needed to know how to repair it. Mm-hmm. So I learned collision for three years. And then I went back to uh, southwestern Ontario, which is, like I said, the, the London area. Brought my skills to uh, smaller shops that I could be everything. <laughs> sure. Collision guy, the restoration guy, the you know the coach builder guy, the everything, and that's where it led to. And then of course, privately for a gentleman, uh, restoring Hudson. And after that, smart guy, just watching him work with people and understanding. I mean, this guy was a biker, just a, a young guy. He used to, he was a welder by trade. There he was building an empire, and it was interesting to watch him work. L- learned a lot from that, you know, and then uh, and then decided to go on my own which I'm learning a lot about business sure, <laughs> and what to do and what not to do. Thank you for taking us through that journey. And it's uh, so many interesting and important stories for entrepreneurs who want to follow their passion is learning from a mentor and spending that time with somebody who can teach you not only the trade, but also the business side of running a company or a business, because that is equally important, if not even more important sometimes. So wonderful, wonderful journey. And as we continue with your journey, I'd like for you to share a success quote with our listeners, a saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, David, take the wheel. Okay. Uh, thank you. You have to follow your passion. You really do. There's another one I wanted to throw in there is uh, know as much as three people. One of my mentors, he told me that. He said, David, if you... If you want to always have a job and you want to be the best at what you do, you have to learn all the parts of your trade and you have to know as much as three people would in your trade. And I really kind of wondered about that. Like, what what does that mean? And what it means is that's why I learned not just the coach building trade and the metal shaping trade, because coach building and metal shaping sometimes can be separate. Uh, Coach builders normally used to be just more the wood. And the metal shaping is another part of it. And the collision aspect. If you know how it's uh, made, you can pull it apart and you can repair it. That's why I say know as much as three people. Now, (laughs) I'm sure you can't physically, mentally know as much as three people, but I mean as far as the trades go. Sure. Normally when you walk into a collision shop, a lot of the guys don't know how to do a lot of rust work. Yes, they learned when they were younger, but they didn't follow through. Mm Mm-hmm. If you can walk into a restoration shop and you can see that they're doing collision work and restoration and coach building and be able to do any of the jobs, when somebody gives you a call, you're able to say, yeah, it's got some collision work. No problem. I have a frame bench. I can take care of that. And then uh, once I'm done the collision work, I can make the panels or remake the wood parts or remake all the sheet metal or aluminum parts, and then I can weld them back on. It really gives you an advantage of knowing that. So that's why I, I call that a success quote, because 
it really, really helps because most people don't know all those three things. They don't know how to do the wood if they know how to do the sheet metal, or they don't know how to do the collision work if they know how to do the sheet metal. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. And I I love the way you you helped us understand how you incorporated that into your business and your life and how important that was. David, can you tell us a story that instigated your passion for cars, that pivotal moment in your life when you really knew that you were a car guy? Just when I was a kid, just because, like I told you, I used to get the Corgi toys and the, and the, and the uh, models. I guess maybe it would be more of the model stuff. My dad, being a salesman, he was on the road all the time, so he was able to... Uh, you know, he wanted to make up the time lost. Sure. So he would bring me home what I liked. He saw that I had an interest in cars. You know, when we were driving on the road, um, I would see a car and I would try and identify it. My dad, he was selling through Miles Laboratories back in those days. And he would, the pharmacy, they would sell car models. So he would buy me those two and, and bring home. So I guess that's, you could say that that's when, uh, when I was, when I would get the model, I would, I mean, I would rip that package open and I would look at that body and I would try it. I didn't even want to use the instruction sheet. You know what I mean? <laughs> Typical sure guy. <laughs> Typical guy. Exactly. No, no instruction sheet. Just let me look at that. Let me study the body. Let me see how it all works together. Let me see if I can figure it out. So I guess you could say that, you know, like with the, with the Corgi toys or the Diggy toys, whatever they call them, uh, Corgi toys and the models, that's what got going. Oh, sure, sure. I share a lot of the same same experiences going down to the corner drugstore and buying the models and bringing them home and sometimes buying two models and building one car from two. So I, I understand completely. <laughs> That's a good one. In fact, I remember my father buying me my very first Matchbox by Lesney. It was a red Jaguar XKE at the hardware store. And I remember it was a quarter. It was a big deal you know, for him to spend a quarter and buy me that. But I still have it. To this day, it's a great memory and was the beginning, beginning for me. So, so David, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and, and really crawl under the hood and get our hands a little dirty. Would you share with us a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced that really pushed you to a breaking point? But more importantly, how you overcame that situation and what you learned from it? Okay. Well, if you want, I don't know if you want the failure or the success uh, first, but I'll give you the failure this is not a failure in doing a, a vehicle. This is a failure in, in, in part of life, which, which reflected the way I worked on the vehicles. Is that okay? Oh, that's perfect. Okay. Um, what I found was when I, when I went from Mr. Beers to uh, just after the, after the modern coach building, I worked for Eureka, Eureka coach for, like I said, a year. When I, when I started to do the, the, uh, frame repair and the unit body uh, collision stuff. What I found was I, I, I developed a really bad attitude when I was younger and I don't know what it was, uh, but I developed the bad attitude. I was laid off twice because of that bad attitude. And, you know, uh, I had my dad's cousin. She, uh, she's still around. She lives in Toronto. She said to me afterwards, because this was while I was still living in Toronto. She said, you know, you have to be, you have to be, you have to be fired twice in your life to understand what it takes to be successful and what you, you need to know what you want to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know if some people have had that. I guess I was kind of blessed to have that. And this is why 
I bring the, the, the failure. The failure is not in a job. I mean, yes, we've all had daunting tasks that uh, we wondered if we were able to get through, but you always get through them. You know, you get your mind right, and you. I can still remember one time when I worked for Mr. Beer, I was working on this Rolls Royce, and, and I was doing some polishing, and he looked at the roof. He saw there was two, two dents, and he said, oh, boy, he gave me heck. He said, those dents are from your elbow. Oh, my God. Mm. There's another crying time. Mm-hmm. But, but this is more of a life-learned lesson. I had, to, I had to be laid off twice to get my mind right, and that's when I went from Toronto back to London. I was unemployed for about two months, found a job outside of London, a little place called Strathroy here, found a job. What I did was I humbled myself immediately and understood that if I, if I did not do this, I would not be the special person that I wanted to be. I didn't want to be just your average body guy, bodyman, body person, whatever. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be somebody special. I wanted something special. And I hadn't gone all that route to just be just your average person, the average body guy. When you went into the shop, oh, there's Jim over there, and he's the body guy. Now, God bless all those body people that have stayed with the trade and are good. But this is why I say to you that you have to be laid off or fired twice. Because what I did was I went to to uh, this AFW place, uh, AFW Restoration and Strasburg, got a job there, said, look, you pay me what you want. Give me a couple of weeks of work. I can show you what I can do. Well, of course, he was amazed. He'd never seen anybody that could do collision work and do metal shaping at the same time. I was, uh, I was in my late 20s. So that, that got my mind right. And I would say that that was the failure that I had that made a success that I said to myself, I will never ever, ever do this again. I will never put myself in a bad place with a bad attitude that will restrict me from being who I need to be, which is a successful person, which, which I don't know, I guess I am that way now. I mean, I've worked on Pebble Beach cars. Not everybody can save that. So sure. I needed to do that for me to find myself to understand what I needed to do to become who I am today. Wonderful personal story, and really appreciate you sharing that very personal story with us. And thank goodness for that family member that helped you understand and give you some guidance as to how to oh, how to take that and where to go with it. And let's shift gears here now and go to the other end of the spectrum and and share a story with us when you had a real aha moment about your career and business. I think that's where you were heading. A time when you realized that hey, you know what? I think I'm really going to make it at this. I can be a real success. I, was, I can still remember um, when I was at uh, uh, AFW, there was a guy that came in. Uh, AFW is uh, in Strathroy. Like I said, Strathroy is not too far away from uh, Chatham, Ontario. Uh, it was about another hour. A guy came in. He was, uh, he was selling uh, paint goods, uh, paint, paint rep, I guess you could call him. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he saw my work. At AFW, and he said, "You know, Dave." He said, "Because uh, I, I I struck a friendship with him uh, o- over time." And he saw, and he said, "Of course, this was after the first time he'd seen me. He'd never seen me there before, and he knew the he knew the owner. And he came in, and he hadn't been to AFW in a long time. And he said to me, "He goes, you know, Dave, you could probably work at RM. Not everybody knows how to do what you do, and you're you're working on cars. I think I was working on a VW, believe it or not, a VW bus." 
I was making a bunch of floor parts and front bumper parts and a whole bunch of stuff. He, was, he said, you could work at RM. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He said, why don't you go? <laughs> of course, Harold, Harold, the poor guy who owned the shop, I mean, he ended up, it wasn't the nicest thing that, <laughs> he would have expected, uh, you sure. know, a paint lab coming in and saying that. But anyways, so he knew that I was able to do that. So that's when um, I think I went for an interview and they said that they weren't looking for anybody at that time. And then I ended up uh, working uh, privately for a gentleman doing his Hudson and then went from there because another gentleman had come in and said, look, at, I heard about you and, and you need to go to RM and, and get a job there. And I've left and you could fill my spot. And it was one of those deals. It was, like I said, it was, oh, it was all divine intervention or something. So, yeah. so there was my aha. And also I make cord parts. I knew with my skilled trade that I could also just make obsolete parts for, uh, for the market place mm-hmm. as well. So uh, that's when I, I uh, had a buddy of mine in Indianapolis that asked me uh, if I could make some parts. Well, there was a gentleman from, from London, who said to me, look at, I know a guy, da, 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 I need some parts made, da, da, da. So uh, I started making a lot of cord parts. And I still make them now. I still make all the step soles and the rocker panels and the rear lower balances and all that stuff. So yeah. I guess that's another little aha market. So hopefully I've answered. Oh, fantastic. Yes, definitely. Let's have a little fun here. What was your first special car? And do you have any special memories about that vehicle? Well, um first special car that I remember seeing that I really, really liked was, um, I mean, as far as me buying one. Well, um, yeah, it was like maybe a vehicle that you've had yourself that was really special to you. Well, just, you know, my, my old Plymouth Furies, I used to, I used to, I used to like buying those old Plymouth Furies. They were huge. And I was one of those, uh, weird punk rocker kids when I was, uh, when I was a kid. So I had, I liked. I didn't like the Camaros or any of that stuff. So we always liked really big cars that could fit a lot of people that you didn't have to worry about. And I, you know, I I, I liked four doors. I I didn't like two doors. Um, so I liked. Uh, so I always had big, big boxy looking Furies uh, that uh, could sit ten people comfortably. Uh, as far as a vehicle that, that changed, there there wasn't really much. It was just more of what I was either making the models or what I saw on TV. I mean, I can still remember watching the Italian job when I was a kid and watching that uh, Lamborghini Mirror at the very beginning of the film. And oh, yeah. Every time I, it, yeah, and you know what? It didn't make it through the, it didn't make it through the tunnel. And I can still remember that when I was a kid. And then, of course, as I got older and then they started, you know, videos and that. And, of course, I always mm-hmm. bought the video or, or rented it or whatever. But the Lamborghini Mirror was, uh, still today, it's one of my favorite cars just because of the, of, of when I was, uh, a youngster and, and saw that car for the first time in that movie. And yeah, they are fantastic. That's for sure. Is there a current project that you're working on right now that really has you excited and fired up? Um, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got uh, two, uh, two cars. One's a, one's a, uh, Aston Martin TB, a 1959, uh, one of 47 because the last, the last year, uh, as a matter of fact, I just had the customer here, uh, yesterday. It's a 1959 Aston Martin DB2 Mark III. This is one of the last 47 cars uh, that was made of the DB model Mark III's. That I've had to make uh, a lot of stuff on, brand new bonnets, uh, lower, lower door sections. Uh, I had a, a young lad from, uh, from Edmonton. He uh, he had helped me too. He made some some uh, quarter panel pieces, uh, skins for it. Yeah, there was a lot of work that had to be done. And also... Uh, 
a seven liter isogrifo. Ooh, nice. Yeah, that I have. Alberta's a little bit different here. There's not a lot of pre-war cars that uh, like the stateside. Mm -hmm. parts of Ontario where you uh, find a lot of pre-war cars. Uh, so they're all post-war European cars, a lot of them here. But that uh, that 7-liter ISO is, um, I mean, I've had to, the car was started again in 84. Uh, I think it was found in Germany. Somebody started restoring it in 84, and then it uh, it sat outside for another whole bunch of years. And then uh, this particular gentleman here in Calgary, he... Uh, he found the car and uh, bought it and bought it over here. A lot of things have to still be made. I mean, I've made the whole rear section of it, deck lid, the trunk floor, the quarter panels. Those cars, they didn't put any primer on them, so they, they've rotted out. But the Aston and the uh, ISO, are they're pretty important e even for here because even to find those cars here in the middle of, you know, I mean, Alberta's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And... Uh, to find those cars here was, uh, uh, I was pretty lucky to find those. And the uh, the owners of them wouldn't let it go to any shops that were uh, local because um, there just isn't that kind of skill right. to be able to build, right. you know. I would say those two cars are, 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 the, uh, are the most important in the shop right now. Oh, yeah, they sound fab fabulous. Now, here's an interesting question for you. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? Well, yeah, I, I looked at that question and I, I thought to myself, uh, what would I be? Well, I don't know the model or make, but it would have to be a car that was coach built, a car that was started, you know, some kind of a LeBaron bodied or some kind of uh, Fleetwood bodied car. I, I guess I'm not, I'm, I'm not giving the model or make because uh, it doesn't really matter sometimes what, what the chassis is on. It's more about the make. Or pardon me, the the uh, the body design. Mm -hmm. I'm going to turn that into uh, something, uh, you know, something designed by uh, Dietrich. Cars are are beautiful cars. Uh, Dietrich worked for a lot of different companies. LeBaron, I think he was part of the starting of, of of LeBaron. But when I look at the LeBaron bodied cars, uh, any of them, or the Dietrich bodied cars, anything to do with Dietrich, any kind of uh, Fleetwood bodied cars. And then um, European, you know, something like uh, Salchuk, things like that. Those kind of cars, Roland Rarbeck. So that's that's. <laughs> that's what you'd be. You know what I'd be. You know, so I I I guess I'd be more of a Fleetwood or or or, or more of a LeBaron body. That's what I would be. So you can pick what kind of car it is. I mean, I've seen so many different kinds of cars that were that were built on. Uh, uh, European chassis that are American uh, that are American coach build cars that uh, on uh, so I guess I would be something like that. I have no Chevy, Ford, Chrysler, something. I, I had none of those because I, I, you know, unless they were especially built cars. But uh, I mean, there's right. been some beautiful Imperials that have been made as well. So I, I guess I've kind of ruined that question. I'm sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> no, I think be, uh, I think I understand, David. It's all about the style and the form and the big rolling fenders and the beautiful parts of the car. And having just returned from Pebble Beach, I get it. <laughs> it's uh, right. Yeah, it's it's the coach building part. Yeah, so absolutely. I haven't uh, I haven't chewed that one up for no, you. No, no, no. Yeah, it was great. We're on the last lap now here, David, and this is when I fire off a series of questions, and you give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? Yeah. Okay, here we go. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? Yeah, I, I guess I would be, uh, 
uh, carry some tools. Definitely, yeah. I heard the interview that you did with um, with uh, Rod Emery, and it was the same thing. Just carry some t- always have tools and a couple of spare parts and pieces when you're doing long trips. Absolutely, I have that with my bike. And I have that with uh, vehicles. I always carry tools. Yep, that is great advice. And having just been down at the Laguna Seca races, the historic races, and running into Rod down there, yeah, always bring a couple spares just in case, especially when you especially when you have an old car. Could you share with our listeners one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? Uh, I guess uh, I would say the process. I mean, the passion with the process. Uh, starting your morning rituals, you end up being a creature of habit, anyways. Yeah, the procedures, absolutely, because uh, that's that's you 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 need to do certain parts before you can can do others, and uh, and make a lot of notes and keep a lot of notes. I mean, I I have a notebook uh, constantly with me. It's when you run your own business, my God, you know the way it is. I mean, people are constantly inundating phone calls and. Holy Moses, I mean, you, you're lucky if you get anything done by 12 o'clock. <laughs> I understand. You know, there's a great book by uh, Michael Gerber that is called The E-Myth, and he talks about that, systems and procedures and how important they are in your business and in your life. So uh, I understand completely. Is there a resource that you could share with our listeners that you're really fond of, maybe a website that you visit often? Well, uh, Facebook and all those places to see what's what's new. Uh, the Instagram was uh, was good. Uh, it's a good site too, uh, just to see what people are up to. Uh, connect with people. Mm-hmm. Is there a book that you've recently read, David, that you would like to share with us that you really enjoyed? Um, there hasn't been a book that I've read recently. I mean, I'm constantly reading the internet uh, and seeing what's up on on uh, just. I mean, coachbuild.com, I go there constantly as well. There's, but you can only look at so many pictures and read so many articles, depending on who's, who's writing them. But I have a book, though, that I, I, I used. It would be, when I worked at RM, I did two, two Fleetwood-bodied cars, and I saw it in a Mercedes. I had a book uh, by a, a guy named uh, Jim uh, Shield. James S. Shield is his name. And uh, the book was called Fleetwood, the Company, and the Coachcraft. And I used that, like like a Bible for a year and a half as I worked on these cars. And the book is, oh, it's got to be about a good inch and a half, two inches thick. It has a lot of photos. I mean, there are probably the same kind of books all over the place that have to do with uh, learning about the company. These are these are companies that started in the, either the aughts or the teens or the early 20s, and they employed massive amounts of skilled trades people that – gave them an opportunity, obviously coming over to states and even Canada, uh, because uh, the Canadian companies and the American companies were kept separate until about 1920, 21, mm-hmm. to uh, read about the families that came over here that were that were hired, or, or probably that were trained in Europe and came over to the United States, again in North America, and had their trade um, just walk into a job. And there were so many, they needed so much skilled labor back in those days. This book not just shows you the cars that were built, but talks about the families. It's quite a story. I mean, I I, I couldn't put the, the thing down, even though I was just using it for pictures, right? And I'll remind our listeners that you can find links to all these resources that David has shared with us at carsyad.com slash David Ryan. So David, we're up to the checkered flag now, and this last question can be a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, 
something that you can't sell to buy a bunch of other cars with, and money is no object, what would that vehicle be and why? Yeah, uh, I thought about this. Uh, There's so many cars. Like you said, you just got back from Pebble Beach. There's so many cars out there. There's so many beautiful cars. I I would have to go with the Miura just because uh, of the impression it made when I was a a young lad. It was the first car I saw as far as that uh, I remember the lines and and how important it was of the impression that it made when I was a when I was a boy. So I would say the Lamborghini Miura. I mean, there's probably other cars, but yeah, that is a beautiful car, and it's one of my favorites as well. It's just gorgeous and. Uh, it is a spectacular design, and, and really, I think, in some ways, the first real supercar to ever hit the, the public roads. The mid-engine design and the fantastic low body just was incredible. I'm sure it made Mr. Ferrari a little nervous when uh, Lamborghini rolled that car out. <laughs> so, A little nicer than tractors. A little bit, yeah, just definitely nicer than tractors. Well, David, you've taken us on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed you sharing your stories and your life with us, and I want to thank you for spending the time with me today. Could you give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Lamborghini Miura, and also let them know what's the best way they can learn more about you and your business, and then we'll say goodbye. Okay. Well, thanks, uh, Mark, for, um, for first of all, uh, li- listening to me. I-, I was son of a salesman, so I could pretty much talk both your ears and your wife's ears off for sure. <laughs> no problem. Uh, if you're willing to listen. Um, I would just say, plain and simple, follow your passion. Uh, I tell young people that all the time. Anybody I'm talking to, uh, anybody that, that shows any kind of an interest, especially young people. So I will say, follow your passion. Yep. Plain and simple, period. Yep. Great advice. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and your business? I don't have a website. No, I don't have a website. I'll have, I'm just on Facebook, uh, Tor Metal Shaping, T-O-I-R, Metal Shaping. Well, listeners, I'll remind you, you can find links to everything we've talked about here today at carsyeah.com slash David Ryan. Just go and type David into the search box and you can find his show notes page. They'll pop right up. David, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise today and for sharing your experiences with our listeners. Until we talk again... We'll see you down the road. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Yeah.